right, guys, so we're in the, the Old Testament prophet Nahum, his book, which is only three chapters long. If you remember, I, I told you that this is an unusual book from the prophets because it really doesn't talk that much about Judah or Jerusalem. He is a contemporary of Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Zephaniah, but his message is completely for Nineveh, okay? So he is, he's probably living maybe a hundred years or so after Jonah, okay? But towards, towards the end, 60 or 70 years after Jonah, he's towards the end of the reign of the Assyrians. He's going to talk about really the destruction of the Assyrian Empire. And uh, there's some things that we can learn uh, from this. I think probably the most, and, and, and you can process this while we're doing this lesson, you know, what, what would be the significance of a book like this for you and I? And I think is, is that what we're seeing here is the judgment of a nation, a judgment of a Gentile nation. And that God holds the nations accountable. He uh, he doesn't forget things. In fact, that's going to come out in the very first chapter. He doesn't uh, react immediately. He he deals with nations based upon their sins, and really, that is the testimony of all of the Scripture. All all nations will answer for their sins. In fact, we know that. Why? We know that from even when we get to the book of Revelation, right? When the nations will be judged, okay? And the great king, Jesus, sets up his millennial kingdom. And so we're going to see that, that God really holds nations accountable for what they do. And uh, so we're going to look at this together. So uh, these are three short chapters. So why don't we start, first of all, with chapter 1. And let me read you the first 15 verses, okay? Well, the only 15 verses from this chapter. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make complete the end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? 
He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your, gra- make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. All right, so let's take a look at chapter 1. We're going to talk about the coming judgment, okay? The coming judgment. First thing I want you to notice, first verse is just an introductory verse telling us about the prophet. So the writer introduces the prophecy as the oracle given uh, concerning Nineveh. So again, this is just about Nineveh, all right? He identifies the book as the vision of Nahum from Elkosh. Now, two things we could see about this. How did God give him this message? Well, he describes it, first of all, as a vision, all right? And he describes it as an oracle. So very much what happened here is God spoke to the prophet as he gave him this prophecy, probably through a dream, okay? And basically told him what to say. All right, so we can see that here. All right, so what is going on here? So in verses 2 through 8, it's a description of God. And here's what you're going to see in verses 2 through 8. We're going to talk about his wrath and his goodness. God is both wrathful and good, okay? Is that hard for us to grasp? Do you think we struggle with that? You think we kind of lean one one way or to a, to another sometimes? Okay, yeah, all right. Most times when you hear about God, what will people say to you? God is what? God is love. And the scripture says that, right? So with that, they think because God is love, that one attribute basically defines who he is. Have you heard that concept? So the concept of God being a wrathful God, how do you reconcile that with God is love? Can people reconcile it or they don't because they struggle with it? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. So, all right. So, okay, that's good, Bruce. So you would say you you don't have a problem reconciling that one aspect of he is wrathful, he's avenging, the other aspect of him being a loving God. You, you don't really, you're not struggling there. Okay. But some people do, right? 
Some people can't concept, grasp the concept of God being a wrathful God, right? Especially if you consider that he's love. Yeah. No, but he does have a good point over there. I mean, you, if, if somebody would come into that, you know, to protect your family, yeah. you're going to do everything possible under the sun. That's what God's doing. He's doing everything under the sun to protect you. Okay. All right. That's good, Penny. So what I want you to think about it for a moment. What are you talking about, George? I, I, I agree with Bruce. I don't, I don't have that wrestling. Yeah, but have you ever talked to somebody when you tell them that we're to fear the Lord? Are we supposed to fear the Lord? Okay, yes. But have you ever talked to somebody who totally rejects that? What do you mean I'm supposed to fear him? You know, I'm supposed to be scared of him. They, they, they don't grasp the concept because in their mind, God is what? Love. So they can't in their mind equate, if you're loving, how can you be a punishing God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you think that's part of partly reflects our culture? Yeah, these righteous and just. That's exactly right. So what I want to show you is God is love. But he's not like a human being. He's God. So therefore, he can be just as equally loving and at the same time be righteous and just and avenging. Now, is that difficult for humans to be? Yes, but we're not talking about a human being, are we? We're talking about deity. So when we look here at this section now, he's going to describe himself as his wrath, and that's what he's going to be expressing towards, towards Nineveh. Because wasn't he merciful with them already once? Okay, yeah, we got that in Jonah. But then he's also going to express his goodness that comes out especially in verse 7 of chapter 1, which is directed towards his who? His children, okay? So let's take a look at this together. So the first thing is, the prophet proclaims that God, the Lord, is a jealous and avenging God. Now, have you heard that somewhere else in the Bible, that he's a jealous God? Anybody heard that anywhere before? Yeah, the first commandment, Right? God wants the worship of his creation directed only to who? Him, right? You shall have no other gods before me, right? Okay? That's the first moral commandment. So he's a jealous God, but he's an avenging God. When, he, when you think about the concept of him being an avenging God, what does that, what do you think that means? Does he let things go? If you attack his people, does he kind of like turn the eye the other way? What, what is that? What is the concept there of him being an avenging God? Because, because he, oh yeah, he's going to make things right. Yeah, in fact, he mentions it twice in this verse about him being a vengeful God, avenging God. So here's what he is: he keeps wrath for his enemies as he is slow to anger and great in power. So he keeps wrath. But he's slow to anger. But here, here's the reality: his his being slow to anger, and uh, what did I put? Oh, yeah, and great in power. The, the reality is is that yeah, he may not react immediately, but he doesn't forget. Did you understand what I'm saying? And he will hold people accountable. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just because he doesn't react immediately, he holds them accountable. Okay? 
he will bring vengeance. Now, I think that sometimes we need to remember that because don't we get frustrated because people do us wrong, right? And God says, leave it to me. Don't take vengeance. Do you know what I'm saying? Leave it to me. I'll take it. But the problem is, is we want to have retribution when? Now. Not 10 years from now, right? Not even, not even a week from now. We want it now. But God, does God act in the now? No, no. He, he's got a completely different time frame than we do, right? And so what you need to realize is, yes, he's slow to anger. And we've heard that phrase before, right? In the New Testament, you know, that he's slow what because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants to give everybody, what, the opportunity to repent. But if they don't repent, what happens? Judgment. That's exactly right. He will pour out his wrath, okay? He'll pour out his wrath. Now, in fact, he gives you, just to help you to understand who it is we're talking about here, he goes through several verses describing God's power over creation. You understand God's power is evident over creation. It says he can dry up a sea. Do you understand? Wow, he can do that. Mountains melt before him. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? So here's the guy, if you really want to talk about it, he may not react immediately, the God, but he is the God, the only God, and, and he is in control of everything. But here's what I want you to see. Then comes verse 7. Let me read you verse 7 again. Because this obviously isn't directed at this point. This isn't directed to Nineveh. Look at what he says, verse 7. He says, The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Who's he talking about here? Well, God's people, and which would be to Judah, right? For you and I, it's he's not talking about Nineveh here because he's expressing he's going to take vengeance on his enemies. But for you and I, he is our refuge. And here's the thing, he knows those who take refuge in him. Now, is there a comfort there? How's there a comfort in those verses? How can these verses comfort us? Okay, we're his people. Think about what it says. He knows those who take refuge in them. What does that express? Okay, he knows you individually. But why would you, what's going on in your life that you're going to take refuge in God? Okay, so troubles. And when we're in the midst of troubles, what do we sometimes think, even though it's wrong? Or what did I do to deserve this? Or where are you? Have you abandoned me? Or have you forgotten me? Okay? And here's what he's saying. He's saying to them, the Lord is good. Okay? The Lord is a stronghold, a refuge, and he knows those who what? Take refuge in him. So he's not forgotten you. So there you see an intimacy, Right? You see an intimacy. He knows those who take refuge in him. I think this is, this is an awesome verse. Isn't verse 7 a good verse? 
Do you, do you know what I'm saying? So, yes, he's going to take care of those. He's saying, I'm, I'm powerful. I'm awesome. I'm going to take care of those who are the enemies. But I'm going to show goodness to who? To my people. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's awesome. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I know them. I, take, I know those who take refuge in me. And let's be honest, we, we could go throughout the scripture, especially the Psalms, where you are encouraged to what? Run to him. He's a strong tower. That's another description. And seek refuge in him in the midst of your what? Troubles. You're not alone. And don't ever think that he has forgotten you. Okay? Don't ever think that he has forgotten you. So, so here's what he's going to show us in verses 9 to 15. 9 to 15, he's going to direct the reality of the end of Assyria. He's going to talk about Assyria coming to an end and also the end of Judah's affliction because of, of Assyria. Okay, so let's take a look here. So the Lord tells Nineveh that their schemes against Israel will ultimately fail. So all these big plans that, that Assyria had about what they were going to do to, to Jerusalem and so forth, that's just ultimately going to come to nothing. Now, what's the comfort in that? Knowing that he's in control. So let's, let's, let's answer this question for ourselves. When you look at what's going on in the world scene, and you got all these different leaders and different things that are going on. I mean, we just saw, you know, somebody trying, North Korea trying to launch a, whatever, a satellite that didn't work. And, you know, and all these different plans and whatever. It, it's kind of overwhelming because you're like, who's in control of all that? Who's got more? Cause, I mean, how do we know what, who's planning what in Russia or who's planning what in China or even who's planning what in El Salvador? How do you know all that? Well, then you come to a verse like this and God says, all your schemes are meaningless. I'm in control. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? Yeah, all your schemes are meaningless and said, and they will ultimately fail. So he describes the Assyrians as drunkards who can't defend themselves. And Gene just said, most drunkards can't. Yes. Yeah, so, so if you think about that, this is, they're like drunkards who can't defend themselves. And so he points out that from Assyria came a worthless king. It, it doesn't, we don't know which worthless king was the Assyrian king. It might have been Zanacharib who plotted against the Lord. But there was a worthless king who plotted against the Lord. And, and you think of Psalm 2, the Lord laughs at them who scheme and plot against the Lord. Do you know what I'm saying? So there was this worthless king. So even with their military might, they will be what? Cut down. So it doesn't even matter how powerful you are, you are no match for who? For God. Is there a comfort in that for you and I? Because sometimes we can look at situations and say, there is no way we're getting out of this. Look at how powerful that obstacle is. And you know what? It's nothing to God, right? Nothing to God at all. So the Lord tells Judah that even though he was that he has afflicted them, he will afflict them no more. Remember I told you he doesn't, he very, he doesn't say much about Judah, but this is one of the brief passages where he does. And he's saying, I have afflicted you. And we know that from the other prophets, right? He has afflicted them. 
even to the gates of Jerusalem, remember? Even to the gates of Jerusalem, Amos was telling us. And so I've afflicted you, but I'm not going to afflict you anymore with the Assyrians. I'm going to break their bonds. The Lord will break the burdensome oppression of Assyria. He's going to break their bonds. He's not going to afflict them anymore. And basically, the Assyrian kingdom will come to an end, and they will not be mentioned anymore. So by the way, can I tell you something from history? Nineveh, when it fell to uh, the Babylonians in 610 B.C., after it was destroyed by the Babylonians, it has never been rebuilt. Nobody, a lot of times in the, in the ancient world, like when you go to Jericho or Jerusalem or any of these major cities, the archaeological digs, they can dig down layers and, and, and know what time frame it is because they dig down through, oh, there was a battle here, look at all the burnt material and so forth. And they just, what, when the battle was over, they just rebuilt the city on top of each other again, right? Nineveh is interesting because when Nineveh falls, it falls. And it's never mentioned again. The Assyrian Empire never arose again, period. They never gained prominence again. That was the end of them. And the Lord is telling you that here. All right, so let's look at chapter 2 now, okay? Chapter 2, we're going to see the nature of God's judgment. Again, 13 verses. Here's what he says. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come in flashing metal on the day that he musters them. Cypress spears are brandished. Chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten up the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cried, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Heart melt and knees tremble. Anguish in all the loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of young lions? Where the lion and the lioness went, where is his cubs with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his, his lioness and filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. 
Okay, so what's going on here? Well, we're going to see the nature of his judgment. First of all, verses 1 to 6 is the attack on Nineveh. Nineveh call, is called to protect itself as the scatterer is coming suddenly to attack. So the scatterer here is, is a reference to whoever it is that's going to attack them, which we know to be the Babylonians, okay? So the Lord, four commands are given as the Assyrians muster their forces to defend the city. What do you mean, what four commands? Well, look at verse 1. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. So four commands there. Get ready, it's coming. We're, this is the day of battle. The prophet proclaims that the Lord is restoring Israel who was plundered. This is why it's happening. Because what kingdom did the Assyrians destroy and wipe out and carried them away into exile? The northern kingdom, right? Israel, the ten tribes. This is retribution for what they did. And they carried away many from the southern kingdom when Zernacharib went all the way to around Jerusalem to take Jerusalem, but he couldn't. So this is because of them. The prophet describes the appearance of the attackers and their military might. So the next thing you're going to see, he's going to talk about them being clothed in red and scarlet, about the shininess of their chariots and the type of spears that they're using. This is how specific he's getting about the attackers. Their efforts at the defense of the city are meaningless. And the city falls. You want to know one of the things here, it says that they flood? What do you mean they flood? Well, outside of Nineveh, because they needed a water source, they had a reservoir that they built. And one of the ways that they, when they, when you lay, they lay siege to a city, they just didn't go attack it one day. We're talking about a months on thing here. How they ended up taking the city was, is they destroyed the reservoir, causing a flash flood to come into the city and overwhelm the city and, and overwhelm the defenses. So that's what he's talking about, the flooding here. And, it, and, and what we're going to see here in another verse or so is, is that the streets are filled with water. Well, it makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense. Kind of reminds you of what happened to Babylon. Remember Babylon? They diverted the flow of the river and because the river went right through Babylon. And so the Medo-Persians diverted the flow of the river, which must have taken months to do. And then they went right in through the dried riverbed and conquered the city. Isn't that interesting, the, the planning and stuff? But we're talking about not, not two weeks of work, but that, what they would do taking months to do it. Nineveh will be carried away into exile. The nation that carried others away into exile, they're now going to be carried away into exile. Isn't that amazing? So the city is flooded and the people flee the city as it is plundered by the attackers. So the people are fleeing. They just drop everything and they go. Drop everything and they go. They want to get out of there. So here's what it, the prophet questions 
where the den of the lion was who once devoured others. It's kind of a sarcastic thing he's saying here. He's asking about lions and their den. Like, what's he getting at here? Well, it's a sarcasm that he's... So where's this lion who filled his den with the flesh of others, who fed his lioness and his cubs? Where's this lion? That's what he's saying here in this passage. Because the lion has been defeated, right? Where's the strength of Assyria? You know, where's this brutal? And they were very brutal. Of all the ancient kingdoms, the Assyrians were the most brutal. They were just brutal people. And, and it kind of makes sense because remember, what's the chief sin that they are being judged for in Jonah? Because of their what? Violence. We've already seen it in this book as well. They are being judged for their what? Violence, the brutality of these people. So the Lord declares that he is against Nineveh and it will be devoured. He's going to hold them account. So now we get to the final chapter, which is verses 1 to 19, chapter 3. Okay? Chapter 3. For the sake of time, let me just kind of go through this with you, okay? I'm not going to read 19 verses here, but we will uh, get maybe at specific places I will mention them. First of all, Nineveh is described as a city of blood because of its uncontrolled violence. Remember, I told you, that's what their uncontrolled violence is a city of blood. Nineveh has lusted for power like a harlot. So it, it, was, it just was insatiable. And so here's again, the Lord is what? The Lord is against her and she will be humiliated. Because look at verse 5. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your faith and I, face and I will make the nations to look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Wow. Pretty brutal, isn't it? He's basically saying, I'm going to shame you. I'm going to lift up your skirts over your head so everybody can see what you're really like. And they're going to throw filth at you. This is the brutality that they're going to face, the humiliation. Just as the Assyrians were ruthless in its conquest of thieves, Nineveh will experience the same brutality. It's interesting, verses 8 here through verse 10 and 11, he's talking about how they were thieves. Remember, Thebes was in Egypt, and it was conquered by the Assyrians. But look at what he says here. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, water, her wall? Cush was her strength. Egypt too, and that without limit. Put, put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed to pieces. And at the head of every street for her honored men, lots were cast. 
and all her great men were bound in chains. Okay, so then verse 11, he says, it's the same thing's going to happen to you. You conquered them. You did this to them. Are you better than thieves? No. God says, it's coming back on you. You treated others this way. You will be treated the same way now. Okay? So Nineveh will experience the same brutality. Nineveh's fortress and defenses are weak and useless. He's basically saying that whatever they're trying to do to defend themselves, they can't. Since all your fortresses, verse 12, are like fig trees. With the first ripe figs, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. So it's like, it's like a tree that's loading down with fruit that's just ready, ripened fruit that's just ready to fall. It just Any kind of a nudge will cause the fruit to fall. The city's efforts at defense are no match for the Lord's judgment. This is what he's saying here. Again, we're talking about a great God. Nineveh's destruction will be so severe, it will never be rebuilt. And I told you that. It never was rebuilt. The prophet is very correct in what he says. Wow, this is, this is amazing. Okay, so what's your reaction? This is not, now you see why we don't go to this and preach messages out of this passage. It's basically a message of judgment, right? There are some positive things here, like verse 7 of chapter 1. This would be an encouragement to Judah because they've been in oppression. But what, what, what stands out to you about this? What's your gut reaction? What's your gut reaction? What, what are your thoughts as you process this? What are your thoughts about God? What, 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 does, what, does a, what does a book like this do to correct our thinking? I guess that would be a better way to say it. What does a book like this do to correct our thinking? Because I remember, sometimes we think things about God that aren't correct, especially when we're in the midst of it. Okay, he's how powerful? Okay. What he can do. Yeah, you're experiencing the same thing, yes. Yeah. Okay, that's good, Penny. Anybody else? Is it, yes, justice is in the Lord's timing and in his hands. Yeah, he's the one who will make all things right, right? Now, is that an encouragement to us? Because don't we think sometimes that people just get away with stuff? And, and we'll even, I mean, ultimately we'll even think like, oh, there's so-and-so died, he was a scoundrel, I can't believe it. No one ever held him accountable. Well, is there ever not being held and accountable? Yeah, God ultimately is the one who what? Holds people accountable, right? And there will always be a day of reckoning, right? There is a day of reckoning, period. And this is what we have to rest in. You know, here's the thing. It's so easy for us to get so wrapped up and angry about the things that are happening in our world and this is what's going on and on and I can't believe this and I'm upset. Yeah, I understand. It, yes, it makes us upset. But 
as a believer, you've got a better perspective as well. That one day, there is one who's going to set all things right. You know, it's interesting. If you go to the letters to the seven churches, one of the churches who endured great persecution, one of the churches that are listed there that endured great persecution, when he gives them the promise to those who overcome, he says that their enemies will come and acknowledge them. In the end, their enemies will come and acknowledge them that they belong to who? God. Isn't that? So there is a reckoning where people will ultimately, before King Jesus, say, they were right and I was wrong. They were your people. This is what's amazing to me. Did you understand? God will have a reckoning. So, it's, yes, we can be angry, but, as, but don't let your anger control you. Direct your anger to the one who will what? Make all things right. And so you say, okay, Lord, I'm giving this to you. You're going to make this right. You're going to deal with these people. And when you look at a letter like Nahum, does he deal with them? Yeah, he does deal with them, right? Yeah. Yes, we're to pray for our enemies. That's exactly right. So, And we know from both the Old and the New Testament that he's willing that none should perish. There's a reason why he's not immediately dealing with everything. Which, by the way, aren't you glad he's not immediately dealing with everything? Because what if he decided to immediately deal with everything before you got saved? Do you know what I mean? So he's willing that none should perish. He's giving the opportunity for all to what turn to him in repentance. Because again, yes, he's a wrathful God, but let's remind ourselves he's also the God that's God is love. And in perfect balance that I don't understand, all of it works together in who he is. And that's my God. That's your God. That's who we look to, right? 